Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Thank you for subscribing, rating, sharing. As always, I know I say it every week, but we do appreciate it. Um, coming up on this week's episode, we're going to be talking about how to change even the most incalcitrant minds? Recalcitrant? I don't know what the word Difficult to change minds. Um, if you'd like to email us, you can do so. Science at Newstalk.com. You can also... Um, Tweet us, we're at News Talk Science, and we get to all of them. At the end of the podcast, we have a lovely story for you this week. Uh, is it recalcitrant? Incalcitrant? Aiden? I actually don't know. You don't know. Yeah, okay, well, Google it. Like, I mean, you're sitting there doing nothing. Time <laughs> to look back at some of the uh, stories from the week's science news. <laughs> this is all going very well, isn't it? Um, joining us in the studio is uh, Catherine McGuinness and Phil Smith, science communicators, both. Uh, you're both very welcome. Our first story, Catherine. Incalcitrant. Incalcitrant. In, re, in. No, don't nod. Is it in or is it re? It's incalcitrant. Incalcitrant. Uh, markedly stubborn resistance. Incalcitrant. There you go. That was a unnecessarily long word, wasn't it? Um, uh, you know, I know most of our listeners suffer, suffer from hippopotamonstrosis scrupidiliophobia, which of course is the fear of long words. Um, anyway, back to... Our, uh, our science news. I'm at a long day. Um, joining us in studio, as I say, uh, Phil Smith and Catherine McGuinness. Our first story has to do with woolly mammoths, Catherine. Yes, you know, in the, in the infamous words of Del Boy, it's a baby. It's a little <laughs> baby girl. Uh, so, yeah, so what this was happened earlier on in the week, we had a discovery in Eureka Creek, which is a great name for the for a place for a discovery, in the Klondike Fields in Yukon. And just Yukon. Got, the Yukon, yeah. So the Whereabouts is that? So it's on the Alaskan border. It's in Canada. Right. Yeah. Up beside the Northwest Territories. And uh, they were excavating permafrost and out popped this little baby woolly mammoth. Uh, they reckon it's about a month old, a girl, and died around thirty thousand years ago. Ah. This is it. Oh, <laughs> you were hoping it was a lie. Yeah, it, it got dark there really quick, oh. didn't it? <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, is this a big deal? We've got loads of mammoths, haven't we? <laughs> See, this is this like, is yeah. for you. This is a big deal. No, not and for others. science. For science, for science is a big deal because this uh, little baby mammoth is the most complete one that we have found in North America, possibly the world. Um, you might remember back in 2007, we had one in Siberia called Luba, and she was almost complete. She was the same age and size as this, but a little bit older. But this uh, baby girl, apart from being cut in half when the excavation <laughs> process happened. She's perfect. She, she is all there. She is actually all there. So it's just a flesh wound. It's, yeah, exactly. Very, very large kind of halving flesh wound. But she's all there and we will be able to do lots of different studies, not just on her stomach contents, so see what she ate, her last meal was, but also um, we have a full animal, so we can look at hair and hide, which has also been preserved. And... Um, also how she was fossilised because she's so complete she must have got buried by mud almost immediately maybe even died in a mudslide or, or, or sank into mud so there's lots of different things that we can find out from her Loads of DNA you'd imagine mm -hmm. Yeah absolutely so it, it, it's really really exciting It's also very special for the people the First Nations of the Yukon which um, are the trendy Wichin people and they have given her the name Nanchoga which means Big baby animal in Han, which is their language. Okay, um, so this we've we've already sequenced the woolly mammoth genome completely, right? So mm -hmm. we won't get any new 
DNA information from no, this? No, this is this this is more environmental DNA. You know, when she was alive, she would have been in northern Canada. She would have lived with wild horses, with bison, with cave lions. So it'll give Not us Not for more. very long. <laughs> keep going down the dark side. Just keep going. <laughs> but, you know, it will bring us a lot more information. And the fact that we've got hide and hair, which is very, why very is that? Why is that of, of scientific interest? Because we, we don't have very many examples of that. Because and you it can just, pull it, sort of mineral signatures from it and absolutely. try to understand the environment a bit better. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, very good. Out of interest, because my understanding is that this, this mammoth just sort of popped out of the wall. Like, how long have you got before that becomes destroyed as a scientific oh, as, as soon as as soon as it leaves the permafrost it starts to de- decay and, right. and degrade so, so uh, the great fast. thing about this was that the, the mining company worked so quickly right. and, and they're to be praised for their actions okay as well. that's great so if you do if you're doing some excavations yeah if you're if you're digging in your permafrost at home you move quickly <laughs> bag of uh, peas yeah. <laughs> several bags yeah. um phil our second story has to do with Wine. I didn't. I didn't know half of the stuff in this story. This is a fascinating story. This is fascinating, and, and wine of the alcoholic time as opposed to just whining. Uh, and, and sometimes when you get a, like a big glass of wine, you're encouraged to have a, you know, get a lot of nose into when you get walks yeah. in the summer and floral dresses and all these things. <laughs> you wouldn't necessarily let the expect to get the aroma of wet dog or boiled cabbage. Not necessarily appealing to you. But uh, this is something that many winemakers are inadvertently infusing um, within to their their vintages uh, by using clear glass bottles. Um, So scientists have found that the reason is this curious phenomenon known as goût de lumière, uh, perfect French, uh, or or light strike, (laughs) in which sunlight or fluorescent shop lighting in some ways reacts with unstable compounds in the wine and brings about these deeply malodorous or stinky results within as you get that nose sniff smell. But so, um, loads and loads of wine bottles are in clear glass. Why does that not happen to every bottle? So it happens to a lot of bottles. Interesting, like when researching this and looking up, most wine bottles you'll find are actually green. And I was like, there must be a reason for this. The reason is that's the cheapest to to, to manufacture in Ireland. Oh, okay. So it's not, they didn't know this. This has been known for a good length of time, all right, that that sunlight, this this light strike affects it. Amber bottles are actually the best at filtering out. They can filter about 70%. Green bottles are about 30%, maybe to 50 uh, clear, then you're going to 10%. But Italian researchers found that within just seven days of storing white wine in glass bottles, the amount of terpines or compounds which add the releasing of this floral or fruity notes such as lilac and blueberry and all these, they diminish by up to 30% just in a few days. Wow. So you're looking at kind of like, also the other things which are 70% of noise of prenoids, which I'm sure I pronounced perfectly again as well, in the same part. So they're, you know, for the complex woody notes of like eucalyptus and, you know, all these things, start to maybe start a little bit like a kind of slight hint of petrol in all of these things. So wine in, in, in clear... So the, so the, uh, the whole all factors, they totally sort of um, degrade into yeah. noise and that noise is is an unpleasant smell to us for the most part. Um, the... the for those of us with um, considerable wine cellars, <laughs> um, what do we do to protect our Blossom Hill and Blue Nun? <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the choice there is mwah, French kiss to that. Indeed. Chef's kiss even. Uh, is that, uh, so this, the, the, the National Academy of Sciences journal where this is pro, pro, uh, was produced and the University of Trent in Italy who did the research concluded that like obviously getting wine bottles in the, the darker colours would be better. Wine cellars kept in the dark. Drinking it quickly helps 
as well because it doesn't have the time to, to it. But also certain manufacturers are changing how it's produced. You might see even like Cristal or champagne bottles have oh, a... F- I, of course. Of course, you drink it all the time. <laughs> uh, have foil around them. Now sometimes people get this and go, oh, I'll take the wrapping off and then I'll put it away or whatever else. So actually it's to leave that kind of... So if there's a packaging on it, but maybe go for the bottles that are, are dark, dark on it. Um, um, and also red wine isn't affected by this as well. So maybe shifting from a white wine bottle that's been there in the sunlight on a shelf somewhere for ages, go for the red wine and you'll get that. But when you think about it, actually, a lot of wine that is in might, might be found in a convenience store is exposed to light for very long periods of time. And then when you drink those wines at home, they tend often to taste horrible. Maybe there's a correlation. Maybe there isn't. Maybe they just are these cheap ass wines that I buy. But maybe that's what it is. Uh, very interesting. OK, um, our third story, Catherine, has mm. to do with spider venom. Yes. For good. For, for, for good. Well, spider venom and medical applications of it have been around for a while. And that's because spider venom, how it actually works is it interrupts the receptors and the pathways in either its prey or, or defending itself from its predators. And so there's been a lot of application for that in things like uh, studies on stroke, pain, cancer, uh, erectile defo- dysfunction, which I'm looking at the desk when I say that. Don't want to catch anyone's eye. And research into yeah. um, <laughs> eco-friendly um, bioinsecticide as well. So um, what this team, they're in Queensland in Australia and what they have found is that um, when someone, after you have a heart attack, you get the cell death occurring and it happens in strokes as well. And this is a natural, almost like a self-destruct mechanism within the body. And there's no real understanding of the evolutionary theory behind why do we have this? It seems like a really bad idea for the body to do this. And what the venom from this one particular spider a funnel web spider, uh, it actually stops that trigger, the triggering of that message. So it can stop the cell death and then person who hopefully recovers from their heart attack, their uh, prognosis is a lot better, their outcome is a lot better. So you're not talking about the cell death that happens from lack of oxygen or blood. You're no, talking no. about a sort of triggered is it, um, yeah. avalanche of messaging that ends up in a cell sort of yeah. self-exploding. Yeah, uh, imploding absolutely. Itself. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it happens not just with heart attacks, but with stroke. Anytime uh, basically any sort of organ is put under pressure, this 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 trigger, trigger message just happens. And what happens then is the outcome of that is you're you're less likely to survive, or if you have something like heart disease, your outcome is is not as great. Given that stroke and uh, and heart attack, for example, are um, acute things, they happen mm. right then and there. I mean, how? What's the clinical application of this? I mean. Like, yeah. like, do you, do you, it, it, could we have an EpiPen with spider venom in uh, it? Yeah, that's it. That's it exactly. So the idea is that the, the drug they're trying to produce at the moment, and it's it's not even at clinical trials. Clinical trials are next year. Um, that uh, if you get a heart attack, you are immediately administered this, and it will just help your outcome. Like in much. Pulp Fiction. <laughs> well, yeah. What's what's one what's one way of referencing it? Yeah. Well, yeah, EpiPen epi was a lot more epi, medical. Yeah, there, suppose, indeed. indeed. Yeah, but, <laughs> But, um, yes, and also not only just when, uh, just after a heart attack or a- after a, a, um, something like that, but also if you're going for surgery, so where uh, damage to the organ is anticipated, yeah, they can administer this drug hopefully, and it will reduce any sort of damage like that. That's cool. Um, the spider venom and the erectile dysfunction mm, is that yes. like? Yes, I'm, yeah, I'm not getting again looking at the. No, desk no, there. it's no, it's fine. But <laughs> uh, for listeners at home, 
do not just throw spiders down your pants. Like that's mm, not a no. It's ants going. Uh, ants that will have. Ants that one. <laughs> well, that, that, yeah, the, the long-known application of ants and erectile dysfunction. Yeah. Um, right. Our final story. We went. We've gone from wine, bad wine, to a hangover. Phil, or as the case may be, no hangover. Well, yes, potentially. It seems like I'm on the alcohol train this week. Uh, Vesalgia, which is the medical term for a hangover, from the Norwegian kves, which means an un- uneasiness following debauchery, and uh, the Greek algia, which means pain. Uh, so hand in hand, exactly hangover well well uh, documented, often caused or thought about caused from dehydration or compelling probably of the buildup of uh, chemicals within toxic compounds within our body. There is a new potential miracle drug or Merkel drug as it's been called which sounds like Angela Merkel will appear somewhere and just scare the hangover out of you uh, it's there it's a it's it's not a, a drug necessarily it's a supplement is how they're they're they're, they're they're marketing this. It contains bacteria, L-cysteine and, and vitamin B12. And what it's supposed to do is these are going to be activated in the gut before alcohol reaches the liver. So the alcohol is broken down into water and carbon dioxide. And then that leads to that low buildup of ultimately acetic acid being produced in the liver. So you get a, a lower level of hangover is the idea of it. Right. And so... Um, does it work? Well, this is the thing. Uh, we're we're going to go with, I'm going to go with maybe um, so far because the, 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 the clinical study that they did this, although it was well designed and they included randomly allocating people for Merkel and dummy pill groups, they only kind of did it on 24 people. They only reported on 14 of that then because they had 10 had lower blood alcohol levels than at the start. Mm-hmm. Now, they did see a reduction in terms of like that the pill is said to break down up to 70% of the alcohol after 60 minutes. So that means that someone could drink about uh, 50 milliliters of 40% spirits, which would then also only, which would contain 20 milliliters of pure alcohol, so that you would only have a smaller account of about 15 milliliters going in. So you would still get the effects of the alcohol in, in 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 your system initially, but because it's being broken down, you would you would be able to 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 drink more essentially. So they're marketing this a kind of mid level drinkers is what they're thinking, as opposed to like people who go over the top. Um, but the, for me, the study Could it be has, used as a, a potentially um, a potential medical therapy for people who have drunk too much or uh, alcoholics or. They're, they're not more aiming at it this way. It is a probiotic, essentially. It is made by a probiotic company. Well, right, probiotics okay. are well kind of, you know, used. Everyone's had the, you know, the ones in the morning potentially to lower cholesterol and everything else. They're safe and widely available. You know, obviously it's yogurts and other things. Yeah, pro- probiotic, probiotics given to people with illnesses can upset the natural balance of healthy gut bacteria and can cause infections. So there's, there isn't a limited study already with a small number, but then to people who already have illnesses or who have other, other answered questions about like other things about what's happening in their systems. The simplest way to cure a hangover remains drinking less alcohol the day before yeah. and, <laughs> and potentially like Prevention before, rather than cure. <laughs> cleared liquids as well as with the darker ones. They're not as bad. Whiskey will give you a worse hangover than vodka. Just a small scientific point for you there. Just as a thing. Well, thank you very much. Um, Phil Smith and Catherine McGuinness, uh, thanks for joining us. How do you get someone to change their mind? Is it by arguing them into submission or by letting them explain the story about how they arrived at their point of view? What is the underlying brain chemistry of how opinions change? The new book entitled How Minds Change delves into those questions. The author, David McRaney, joins me now to discuss. David, welcome to the programme. Uh, are you someone who changes her, his or her mind much? I I would like to say that the answer is yes, but uh, I resist like everybody else. Uh, I 
try to kind of go through a pilot's checklist of how to be better at changing my mind when the evidence suggests I should. But like anybody else, I resist. And uh, it's a struggle every day to make sure that you push back against that resistance in times when it matters. My mum is constantly telling me how she's changed. And my dad is constantly telling me how people never change. And I'm wondering, what got you interested in, in this? Because this is, to me, a very interesting subject. It, I got interested in it because I had, for years now, I've been uh, hosting a podcast of my own and uh, have written books about this topic for a while. I pretty much made it my beat as a science journalist to discuss motivated reasoning, the the ways in which we find uh, opportunities to justify and rationalize not changing our minds uh, or holding positions that we've held forever based off of whatever we learned. And I had reached a point where people were asking me how to deal with family members who were deep into conspiracy theory or held very difficult views. And I was giving out advice that I just didn't feel much passion for. I was saying you can't do that, or here's why they do this. And it wasn't very prescriptive. It was very descriptive. And I just didn't, I didn't feel strongly that that was a great way to go about taking everything I talked about so far and applying it somewhere. And then at the same time, same sex marriage, uh, norms, laws, and attitudes in the United States shifted so dramatically at this time that I was starting up this, uh, this idea for a project it was very clear to me that minds can and do change on issues that seemed uh, intractable. And I wanted to understand it at the deepest level possible. And I decided let's start with brains and work our way up to entire nations. And it became a much larger project than I ever expected it would be, mainly because so many things did change in society as I was writing it. And I felt like I wanted to talk about it. And that's how I got into the topic and have stayed in it for a long, long time now. Let's start at the uh, neurochemistry then. When we make a decision... Uh, do we realize it before we behave? Is, 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 is there an order to that? Because there's some evidence to suggest that um, we've made a decision before we realize it, right? Yeah, it's in, sta it's in stages and, and steps and, and levels and abstra of, of, of abstraction and, and cognition. Like there are some things for which we're on autopilot a good bit for uh, just getting hungry and or wanting uh all there are all sorts of drives and dispositions that are far more innate and automatic and we don't have a lot of control they happen more to us than we uh have any kind of free will over but then as you get up in levels and levels of complexity there are things to which we do seem to be making conscious decisions and choices now our awareness that we're going to make the decision or awareness that we already have the choice sort of picked out often doesn't arrive at the very moment that that thing has already been sort of handed up to consciousness for a review. Oftentimes, like you say, there is research that shows that the conscious awareness of some things isn't there at the same time that we decide or feel or choose. But for some things, it never gets there. And some things, it, it eventually gets there, is I guess is a good way to put it. So um, is, it, is it possible to trace a decision with an MRI scanner, or, or how, how do we? No, how we don't do we, have the level of. Yeah, we don't have that level of technology yet. Unfortunately, we have uh, a lot of evidence in a lot of different domains that show that, at least when it comes to updating your understanding of the world, that there's uh, it, it goes. It happens via two processes that they call assimilation and accommodation. Assimilation is whenever you encounter new information that could be interpreted one way or the other, uh, given particular motivations and your experiences so far, you may feel that you should 
interpret it in a way where it just fits into the existing model. In other words, you see what you expect to see, or this seems like confirmation of something you already understood. There's another a process called accommodation in which the same thing happens, but for some reason, the dissonance is so strong, the, the evidence is so overwhelming that you need, feel a need to, or it's so new and novel that you need to accommodate it. So you need to expand your understanding of the world. The way I try to make sense of that without getting into too much psychology terminology is when a child sees a, a dog for the first time uh, and they point at it and you, and you tell them that's a dog, something categorical happens in the brain where they're, they're thinking, okay, non-human four legs, walks on four legs, tail, that's a dog. And then later on, they may see a, a horse and they will point at it and say something like big dog. And that's an attempt at assimilation right there. They're, they're attempting to see, they see something new they've never seen before, but they're trying to make it fit into what they already understand, which is a way of changing your mind that we would probably think of as not really changing your mind. Hmm. It's just, it's just deepening and entrenching the way you see the world. But if you were to say, no, that's a horse, that to make sense of that, they must accommodate. They they have to create a new category in which dogs and horses exist. So that would be something like animals or creatures, whatever they're thinking. And they have to sort of expand their mind to make sense of it. Right. These two processes are happening all the time, continuously, even in this conversation. But we resist the accommodation much more than the assimilation, the more complex the model gets over time. So obviously there's been a lot going on over the last three, four years. <laughs> and um, a lot of people would probably do well to arm themselves with some tools to uh, to change minds if they see there is overwhelming evidence that, that the person they're with should change their mind. <laughs> you mentioned this um, incredible study in the United States where canvassers were trying to change minds on uh, gay marriage and had an extraordinary success. And this paper, if, if we're talking about the same one, uh, originally the data was murky and then there was oh, a yeah. question about retracting it and then, and then it was redone by other researchers and found to be even more powerful, this technique. Mm -hmm. So tell me, we, we kind of covered that before in a previous show. I'm more interested really in what is the trick to getting someone sure. to say gay marriage is wrong have, having them spend time with somebody and at, at the end of that change what, what is for many people a deeply held belief. How do you do it? For sure. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, the research, I was involved, I was interviewing the researchers every step of the way, including the ones that were part of the retraction and then the ones who came through later. And the whole mess with all that was the original, one of the original researchers, uh, they just simply copied and pasted data from another study invalidating the research. And once that was put aside, other scientists came in and said, well, I would actually like to do the research. And so that research is what I emphasize in the book. Mm. Um, it has a very high success rate and it's, it, it shares, this model shares something with a lot of persuasion models. And in fact, one of the things that, that I was astonished by when researching this and spending time with people who do all these different persuasion techniques and different activism groups is they all pretty much have the same technique and it almost always goes in the same order in and even if they had no awareness of the underlying science, that if you A-B test something long enough, you tend to arrive at what seems to work when it comes to these kind of conversation dynamics. In deep canvassing, uh, they go door to door, they knock on people's doors in areas where they they feel they're pretty sure people there will hold a certain attitude they're attempting to persuade them to change. And um, the very first thing that's most, most important is to establish rapport with the other person. Um, make sure that they understand you're not out there to... Uh, shame them and you're not out there to make them feel any sense of ostracism with their with their all with their existing in-groups that 
If people feel that, they will usually eject from a conversation. You also want to avoid something called reactance, which is the sense that your freedom is being taken away or it's being threatened in some some way, which comes from someone saying, I'm going to reach in there and change something in your head. Uh, anytime someone feels that that's what's at play, they're going to resist. Instead, what you want to encourage the other person to do is, I'm, I would like to get your consent to have a conversation. I'm going to listen to you. I'd ask you to listen to me. And once you're in that sort of trust frame, you can then move forward. And the first most important step really is you ask the person how they feel, how strongly they feel about the issue. In deep canvassing, they ask from zero to, to 10. And depending on the issue, you know, you frame that however that makes sense for the issue. And when the person gives you their number, you then ask, why does that number feel right to you? And this is a, a way to get out of a debate frame, out of a, I'm going to prove I'm right and you're wrong. Uh, we're going to try to, to be at odds in some way. This is instead moving into this metacognitive frame where I'm going to ask you to introspect deeply and I'm going to be here and hold space for you as you do so. And there's almost nothing you can't apply this to that you want feel something strange happen inside you. If I were to ask you like the last movie you watched, how much, did you, how, what would you give it on a scale of zero to 10? And then you tell me, it feels like that's just a, a binary sort of thing. But then if I ask you, why does that number feel right to you? You start having to produce sort of reasons and justifications and motivations mm. from somewhere inside you. And then if someone is say an eight, you could ask, why not a seven? Why not a six? If you, or you could go in the other direction. So you encourage a person who may have never produced counter arguments for their own position to start producing those counter arguments. And since they're their counter arguments, they're the ones producing them, not being copied and pasted out of you. It avoids all these things that could cause a person to both get out of the conversation and encourages things where the person can now have more of a balanced view that they may not have held until this particular conversation. And from from there, there on out, the steps are different in everything, in every different technique. But in deep canvassing, they ask, um, they actually usually show people an attack ad or show show a counter argument, then ask them to readdress the scale if it's moved. They ask them why or how, and then they. All throughout this, you're repeating back, you're you're reflecting, you're paraphrasing, you're showing that you're non-judgmentally listening, and then you ask about a time in their life when they felt, when they first felt this way, where they first heard about the issue. You ask them, was there a time before you held this attitude, and so on. And you're really hoping that through that questioning process, a person gets a chance to see how this attitude formed and if there's any conflict within any of their experiences, and then. You just f follow it from there, keeping holding space. And believe it or not, just doing it in that way can listen a person into reevaluating how they feel about an issue mm. much more powerfully than it would if you were trying to directly coerce, persuade, or manipulate them. Yeah, this really echoes um, Carl Rogers' approach, I yes. think, to communication. I was trained in yeah. Rogerian therapy back in the day. Like, when I thought I was going to be a therapist, that was what I studied in school. So I got to come full circle with that. Yeah, he's the sort of um, father, or I mean, I, I don't know the history, maybe he's one of many, but it seemed to me he was given the title of father of active listening and that sort of, you know, sort of getting people to talk uh, and then reflecting back on them, their own feelings. And, and, and I had a conversation with um, the chief negotiator um, of the FBI during the Waco um, tragedy, uh, Gary mm. Gary Nosner, and he was he was saying exactly the same thing that if people are angry or people don't agree with you, th you know what the research shows is that you need to just listen and let them talk and reflect it reflect them to a neutral reflect themselves to a neutral state, and then you can start. Um, having those sort of conversations, which I think is really interesting, but that that works when when there is a level of 
reasonably re- reasonableness or sanity um, on on behalf of the audience. But when you go to somewhere like the Westboro Baptist Church, which I know you've mm. you've been. Um, there are very extreme positions there that are very violently held. What was your experience there? And, and, and tell me about um, how you might go and change the minds of someone who feels so strongly about something. It becomes almost a, an outlier for a community. Sure. The, the most intractable positions come from places like that. Psychologically speaking, the, the motivations are strongest in those places domains. The I spent time with Westboro, uh, conspiratorial communities, cults, pseudo-cults, and so on, uh, and with particularly with people who had left those groups, because I wanted to see, is there, was there anything common between them? Was there anything I could bring back to scientists to help understand? What I found with the people I spent time with at Westboro, the people who had left, I, I, I went there to both and visited their services. Uh, I went to their Valentine's Day services, and then I also- What was that to- like? For listeners who aren't familiar with Westboro, maybe you might just- Explain one of the explain the Valentine service and the sort of reputation that this um, particular group has. Yeah, it, in the United States, at the the Southern Property Law Center considers them the, the sort of the most active and most sort of repugnant, I guess you would say, uh, a hate group in, in America. They are a Baptist church and they picket at soldiers' funerals, saying "Thank God for dead soldiers." Dead soldiers. They're very active during the same-sex uh, marriage. Uh, debate and 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 for a number of LGBTQ issues, they will picket at different places and and protest the very idea of someone having a, a particular sexuality. They are uh, angry and aggressive, but they they don't resort to violence. They do everything through protest and through passive aggression and violent sort of words. Violent words. Their whole their whole shtick is to troll everyone mm. to the point that you get mad and then they can get, have a fight and that fight can give them publicity. So it's, it, it's worked out well for them in that regard. But it's also a family. They're, they're just one house. It's just a house in a suburb. And I was actually surprised by that. When I went there, I expected it to be like a, at the end of a, of a snaking trail in, in the forest with uh, decaying trees all around it. I, it was it was just a house, just a suburban house. Uh, the whole family has sort of has purchased all the houses in a suburb and they have privacy fence between the houses. And so they've built a sort of compound out of a regular old suburb in Kansas. So I went to their house where they have the church and they've converted a portion of the house to a church and they invited me in the, they opened the door. They they asked if I had called ahead or emailed ahead. I had, I had emailed ahead, but nobody answered. So I just drove there. I flew there, then drove there and then knocked on the door and, and someone in a crisp, silky pink shirt opened the door. His name was Isaiah. And he said, come on in. And he looked around first because they are really fearful of people who may be coming there to do them harm, burn down the building or something. Yeah. And um, I sat down and I say in the book, it was, there was very little during the sermon that would have clued you in to the fact that this was the Westboro Baptist church. In fact, as someone who was raised Southern Baptist and, and didn't leave the church till I was around 10 or 11, I was most off put by how familiar everything felt. It was like, this just feels like every time I ever went to church as a kid. Um, in a way, that's what they are. They're just a Baptist church that has come, has a very particular gimmick that's, that's giving them a lot of publicity and they they, they thrive off of that. And that being a thing, the people who are, who have left the church and many people have, they typically grow up within the church. It's their family. It's their, it's their flesh and blood. And, so they have multiple things that are motivating them to stay in there. One is these familial obligations, but then also these the religious ideology, 
and then the sense of extreme community that is bordering on cult with that group. That's also true, though, however, I've, I've found with other groups. The familial thing may be missing, but with, in a lot of conspiratorial communities, very similar things are at play, especially within cults, very similar things are at play. And that is this, Brooke Harrington gave me the, the greatest construction of this, which is, she's a sociologist, and she said the equals MC square of social science is that the fear of social death is greater than the fear of physical death. If you can imagine how motivating it is for a person to avoid physical death, it is actually more motivating to avoid the death of one's reputation mm. or your connection to others yeah. in, your, in whatever in-group you've, you've, you've become part of. And when you're attempting to discuss particular beliefs and attitudes and values with a, with a member of a community where those beliefs, attitudes, and values, should they change them, threatens their very identity, their very reputation, their inclusion to others – this is the most resistance you will ever experience. Mm. So how could you ever escape something like that? Well, I found that the same story was true with everyone who left those groups. What usually happened was someone from another community, another in-group they're not part of yet, was kind, compassionate, transparent, open, curious, and non-judgmentally began asking them questions and offering a chance to just kind of hang out with them, sometimes virtually at first, sometimes actually in person. Sometimes they would eventually be invited to things. They would do things together. And they started to take a foot out of the world they were in and place it into another social world. Right. And once a person's done that, those same things that were motivating them start motivating them within the other group. And they start to develop a social safety net that allows them the opportunity to question things. And a little questioning will, and for some people, grow into even more questioning. And typically what happens is it isn't something in their belief structure that gets them to leave. It's Sometimes something very small, very petty, sometimes something very personal, like the dress code changes. Somebody says something they don't like. They get angry in some particular way that's outside of the ideology. And that's the thing that, that clues them into like, you know, I have a better experience with these people. And mm. so they, the off-ramp, once it has been constructed, at some point, something will trigger them to take the off-ramp out. And it's only once they are out for a little while that they start to rearrange their entire belief structure. So that seems to be one of the, if, with a person who's that locked in, it's a, a long process of constructing an off-ramp for them to leave. That, and it's not going to happen in one conversation. It's going to take many. It's going to take building a very strong relationship to provide that. Does shouting at someone work when you're trying to change someone's mind? Well, the short answer is just no. Uh, <laughs> neither do facts. Neither do – like facts do work, but they work in good faith environments, places where everybody's playing by the same rules. It's the difference between the two things called topic rebuttal and technique rebuttal, they say. Topic rebuttal is facts, evidence. When you're just you're two people behind a lectern having a, a debate, that works just fine in scientific domains, sometimes other academic places, even in like politics, justice, that sort of thing, uh, law. But for most things where we're not in that good faith environment, or we haven't built one yet, you have to lean on technique rebuttal, which is an attempt to explore the other person's reasoning and give them an opportunity to reevaluate that reasoning in the conversation. And that has a lot more success. There's the, you're much more likely to reach success going that way than you would if you're trying to just shout, dump facts, anything in that regard where the good faith environment is being either obliterated or never established in the first place. Um, what about storytelling because i know a major part of the, the success of the of, of a campaign can come down to people telling their own personal stories of why mm. a particular change of mind is important to them uh, and giving their own own life context and in the absence of that story 
sometimes the arguments are not as convincing. Why is story so persuasive? And is there evidence to suggest that from social science? There, there's, there's evidence for this. There's a great deal of evidence in this regard. The, uh, it's called, if anyone is interested, you could search for something called narrative persuasion. Uh, not narrative persuasion. That, that's how I call it. It's called narrative transport, which is the vehicle by which narrative persuasion takes place. Yeah, there are two, two reasons for this. Uh, to put it very simply, you can't knock the leg out of a table without putting another ta- a leg in its place. If you don't, if you, otherwise the table will fall over. No human brain is going to allow for the table to fall over. So when you are suggesting someone needs to rearrange their understanding of something, and there's a sense of loss of, of sort of under of some sort of way of constructing reality that's being eroded because of this conversation, you have to give them something else that could go in its place to hold up their understanding of the world. So that's where storytelling is so important. People can listen and pick and choose and find ways to still maintain an understanding about something via someone else's experience. The other thing that makes it extremely powerful, which is a far more neurological, is that when someone is telling a story or whether we're watching it on a, in a movie or we're reading it in a book, there something called narrative transport can take place in which you have that sense that the outside world is gone. You're totally immersed in the storytelling. And in that space, it's almost impossible for a person to produce internal counter arguing and you are able to neutrally take advantage of ideas that beforehand you might've resisted, you might've pushed against. And that's why storytelling can be so powerful. And most persuasion techniques, there's this step deep within that says, make sure you do tell your story before you disengage with the, uh, the other person. Why, why do we evolve um, to, to shout and argue with each other then. Like anger, um, it seems to me, I remember hearing a definition of anger, which I thought was really clever. It, that is that it's a, it's a calibration tool. And, and basically anger comes from you feeling that someone else doesn't have the same values as you. And by being angry at them, you're sort of cal- trying to get them to recalibrate to value the things that you value, right? Which I think is a really interesting idea. And... Um, it seems to me when you talk about what's effective for changing people's minds that shouting and getting angry at someone shouldn't have evolved. It, it, it's it's unsuccessful as a behavior. <laughs> it shouldn't have evolved socially. Um, did you look at that at all? Yeah, the the the, the people who I've leaned on the most for help with this, uh, Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber, they have a great book called The Enigma of Reason. And uh, Tom Stafford out of Sheffield, who has uh, this great hypothesis he calls the truth wins scenario. And they're, they're all, they're both, all three of these people are doing continuous work in this regard. What seems to be true is that the, the, the way I could, the easiest way I could explain it would be to say like the muscles of your arm and hand did not evolve for the purpose of paint, making beautiful paintings, but we can do such things with it. And it's incredible that the, we, the things we're able to do because of the ability to manipulate the world with these arms and hands that were evolved for other purposes and other selection pressures created what we use to do all sorts of things with our hands. The same is true for the systems by which we produce and evaluate argument arguments and propositions. These most likely evolved for the purpose of consensus toward a common goal or plan of action. And you've all already experienced this whenever you've uh, gotten together with a group of three or four people and tried to decide where we're going to have dinner. And people put forth their very biased, sort of lazy reasons for why they would want to go somewhere or not. And other people uh, produce theirs. And then once everybody's got them in, in, out in the open, we then evaluate everything given all sorts of other things that are going to come out of the conversation. We could also apply that though to things like truth and justice and morality and, and concepts of philosoph- great philosophical import. 
That being said, the way we're going to go about that is we're going to first put our perspective out in play from a very biased and and I would say lazy, but let's just say uh, the fewest calories possible position. And then you're going to try to evaluate that more carefully. And that's where all this came from. And you know, there are times when if the bear, if you're worried that a bear is going to eat your friend, it is very useful to shout and get <laughs> angry and push them around. Uh, it's just that you shouldn't really apply that to issues that are just a little more philosophical in nature, I think. Yeah, that, that makes sense that uh, aggression evolved because it's useful in some circumstances. We're just applying it in the wrong way when we want to change people's minds. Very interesting. The book is called How Minds Change. The author is David McRaney. David, thanks very much for your time. Hey, thank you so much. Yeah, so I guess if you ever find yourself reaching um, for a crowbar from your boot because someone's cut you off, you're going to have a, an idea of why I might, might be doing that from an evolutionary point of view. So Aidan McKelvey, producer of the program, joins me to go through comments from last week. There's only one comment, really. Um, so before we go into this lovely story, actually, um, have you been? I've been pretty good. I could have done with that knowledge that David McCraney just gave us maybe nine months ago, and then I wouldn't have wasted six months trying to talk a conspiracy theorist around on Twitter. Yeah. It, I'm looking at my approach now going, that was the wrong approach. That's yeah, a strange way to spend your time anyway, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, I say six months, but like six months because, you know, you do a tweet every four days to respond to the last Are you tweet. one of those guys who does that? No, I'm I'm actually much better behaved on Twitter than you are. <laughs> I, I, what are you talking about? <laughs> in that, I think that, that generally, and I probably shouldn't say this as a journalist, people need to get off Twitter. Like, it's not the real world. People don't act like they do in real life. They're all, the vast majority of the people on Twitter are embarrassing themselves and in 10 years they'd be like, what was I doing? So I generally only tend to post like look at this cool picture of a planet from this angle or retweet future-proof things uh, or the odd positive story. But I don't tweet about kind of things that are What am arguments. I doing wrong? Now you're making me paranoid. <laughs> well, you're, well, you're just doing what everyone else is doing where you're like throwing out your opinion on something and I'm like, that's just going to get you in trouble. Well, so what I don't... So I've taken a, 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 an oath to myself, which I've kept, which was a number of years back, I said this whole Twitter thing, this social media, this unkindness that's out there, I'm just never going to criticize a person. I'm going to attack the idea, not the person. And I have not said anything negative about an individual, despite it being very hard at times. Yeah, uh, I haven't said one negative thing about an individual in a number of years. And it makes it a lot easier. You can attack it, and then you can come back from an idea. But if you attack someone personally, even if sometimes they might deserve it in your eyes, then I think uh, you're losing you're losing your fairness and your objectivity, and you you know. So I, I don't do that. Um, so I I I do get involved in conversations, and sometimes I might have to walk back something if I'm not right. And I think um, Kevin Mitchell, Kevin Mitchell, our neuroscientist friend, was like, "That's not how perception works." <laughs> but that was okay. That was that was that was that was just me being stupid rather than being in an argument. But I I I, I thought it was quite. Careful out there. Oh no no you're you're fine like you're do, you're not doing anything offensive but I just think generally in a in a conversation right so especially if there's a disagreement in the conversation in real life you wouldn't have that conversation when you were in a group of like twelve people and the other uh, ten people were just on looking if there was a real disagreement you'd take the person aside and you'd have a 
adult conversation about, well look here we disagreed about this and I'm worried about this but no, nobody on, nobody, on, yeah, nobody on Twitter ever does that they're like my opinion is right and these hundred people I think do it's that. right that's not fair that's an, that's a, I, I feel <laughs> I must defend my honour I'm going to punch you in the face yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, comments from last week so we were talking about insect attacks and um, how we have used insects in warfare over the many decades across the world horrifying stories many of them and uh, Kevin Levy got in touch because we were asking have you ever been badly uh, injured or um, uh, hurt by an insect but a happy story is what we're looking for we made it very clear we don't want any stories that end badly so uh, Kevin Levy emailed us in thanks Kevin he says hi Jonathan I listened to your always excellent show about the use of insects in warfare thank you always I'm not so sure but thank you very much I note that you wanted to hear stories about insect attacks I was travelling around South America in 2001 specifically I was in the Bolivian rainforest with a couple of English guys a Dutch girl and a Danish guy hoping to trek to an area to see jaguars that is badass Kevin we were supported by two indigenous Bolivian guides and a mad French woman who acted as the translator we were probably two days in and the guides advised that they'd seen a black wasp nest ahead they said these things were very aggressive and dangerous and to be really careful so we took proper note of that as we'd already been made aware of bullet ants and capital caterpillars that burn and the many poisonous snakes we had seen but this wasp nest was of great concern to the guides because it lay in the middle of the path that we wish to travel and he says he put path in sort of inverted commas because you're trekking through the jungle there was no real path but it was the way they wanted to go uh, he says we were told to run one at a time with very heavily laden backpacks, I might add, and not to stop until we were told to. Like, how terrifying is that? (laughs) The first couple of us got through unscathed, says Kevin. Then it was the turn of the Danish guy. He got stung horribly all over his face and head. Oh, man. In a matter of seconds, he started to swell up like the elephant man. He was almost unrecognisable, screaming in pain. Could you imagine in the middle of the Bolivian forest? That's like, insane. And the Bolivian tour guys, indigenous dudes, would be like, yeah, that happens. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. In the West, you're like, oh my God, I cut my finger. We're like, it's like, yeah, that happens. Some people die from that. That's, that, that happens. Our Bolivian guides took some potion or other out of their bag and they told Lars to drink it and not ask what's in it. I love that bit of detail. <laughs> Within a couple of minutes, the swelling had gone down unbelievably. Within a matter of hours, you would not have known it had happened at all. Amazing recovery. Obviously, he made a full recovery. I still have no idea what was in the bottle. I think once everything's gone down, you'd be so happy you'd say, I don't care if it's semen, I just want to know. But they yeah, know. nobody asked. Nobody asked. <laughs> Why like, would I would be like, that? look, just tell me. I won't tell uh, Lars. Just tell me what, what was in it. It was the soul of the last person who <laughs> died from this. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> he was not so lucky later in the trip, poor Lars, having gone for a swim in a waterhole Something I was very much against, having seen many different shows on the dangers of parasites in that part of the world on National Geographic. A couple of months after travelling home, he started to develop horrendous ulcers on his legs. He finally found out this was from a specific parasite that lived in a very specific part of Bolivia that can lie dormant in your body for long periods of time and is extremely difficult to kill off. Keep up the great work. Regards, Kevin Levy. <laughs> so I'm, I'm getting two things out of this story. Either Kevin took my instruction of only good stories, um, literally, and he just removed the part where the guy died. <laughs> Maybe. Or Kevin, once again, did not um, 
think of the most obvious question and get it answered. What happened? Is Lars okay? Maybe he's gonna. He's gearing up for a sequel. It's a classic cliffhanger. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we were travelling uh, around uh, South America uh, and uh, we had this trip planned and I went into um, a doctor to get all of the um, injections. injections I was supposed to get. And he said, don't eat anything off the street. And I said, if I don't, I'm just going to stay here if I'm not going to eat anything. I'm, I'm going to eat off the street. He said, you're mad. You're going to go. He said, where are you going to go? And actually, we're doing, I was in South America, India, China, and a whole bunch of these, these countries. I was very lucky to, to get to do it with work. And uh, he said, just don't eat anything. I said, I'm eating everything I see. Everything I see, no matter what it is, wet markets, just stick it in my mouth. That's what I'm going for. I want to experience the, the, the culture. Like Food is, like to me, 90% of a country's culture. We went on holiday. Um, oh, we went on, on a holiday. I call it a holiday. It was actually a work trip. We went on on uh, set. Went to um, Mumbai. Ate curry for breakfast, lunch, dinner every single day, wherever it came from. Like a side of the street stall. I ate random stuff. Absolutely fine. Our poor sound guy went out, had a few beers. Next morning, we went into the slums. And if you know anything about what the you know the sort of quality of life those those people have to endure um the smells of the slum are really unbelievable and he just vomited every like just constantly so he contributed to the aroma of the slums but um but i managed to travel the whole trip and i was fine didn't get sick once i think you know that you know i think you know not swimming in a in a lake in Bolivia, you missed out big time, Kevin. Yeah. Apart from the horrendous ulcers that you would have gotten. And the lesson is, put your fate in blind luck. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Why not? Why not? Well, um, that's it from us on this week's Future Proof. Thanks to producer uh, Aidan McKelvey, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt, Jojo Cardozo on sound. We'll be back with more on Tuesday where we'll talk about... Uh, birds. Birds and how birds can smell, even though you probably knew that they, it's a complicated story. It's actually very interesting. Apparently, we, we, we thought they couldn't smell, but they can smell, which seems obvious to me. Anyway, look, don't miss it because it's a good one. Tuesday, in the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.